Good morning, Crossroads. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles, we'll reference them often this morning. Um, I love the songs we sang this morning. We're going to have opportunity to do that a little more following the message. But just this idea of trying to see God's glory. You know, Moses asked for that. Moses, when he was leading the people out in the wilderness, he said, God, now show me your glory. Don't even think of sending me out here if you're not going to go with us and, and demonstrate your glory. That's something we desire as people who have a heart for God. We want to see his glory. And I think one expression of God's glory that we don't think about enough or elevate enough is what Paul describes this morning in our text as God's purpose in election. God's purpose in election. And if you've been a Christian a while and Maybe you've had, been in small groups and were raised in Sunday school classes. You've had conversations about this doctrine. And it really kind of comes down, and I'm oversimplifying when I say this now, but to two views that are very prominent in Christianity. One that came from kind of out of the, the, the ministry of John Calvin, the reformer way back in 1500s. It's become known as the Reformed tradition. And that pretty much says in this doctrine of election, God chooses people. The counter to that is more an Arminian perspective, which says we choose God. And so these things have, there, there's kind of been debate and at least at, at best heated conversation about these over uh, the centuries in Christianity. And uh, so this morning, regardless of where you stand, if you're more of a Calvinist, you know that you're here because God predestined and determined you to be here before the creation of the world. And so Jesus be praised for your presence this morning. And if you're more an Arminius, we are Arminian, we're so glad you chose to come here this morning. That's just really, really great. So, again, we oversimplify these things too much. Let me just start here with a definition so you know where we're going. And this is all in Romans chapter 9, the second half. This idea of this doctrine of election in its simplest terms is really this it's God's decision in choosing a special group or certain persons for salvation or service. So election just simply refers to God's choice of certain people for salvation or service. Now we're going to read this text one paragraph at a time, just to try to be a little more clear with that. And we're going to, all I'm going to do is outline this text. So I'm going to give you a theme statement of each paragraph, and then some subpoints. If you're a note taker this morning, you're going to love the next 40 minutes. If you're one that likes to hear a point and sit and contemplate on it a little bit without being interrupted, you're going to be thoroughly frustrated. Um, so just take notes. I'll try to pause and let you move forward together. And, uh, but each one of these subpoints has a lot of implications for our faith and life. And so you're going to have to just think more about this beyond this message today. And, but let's start, and I'll read verses 10 through 13 of Romans chapter 9. We pick it up kind of in the middle of two illustrations that Paul is giving. Matt Strader talked about the one last week, and now we're talking about the next generation. This Isaac was Abraham's son. He married a woman named Rebecca. They birthed twins. One of those twins was named Jacob. His name was later changed to Israel, so this is the beginning of the nation of Israel. Verse 10, not only that, but Rebecca's children, the twins were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, that's kind of the theme of the morning, that phrase, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. 
Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right. Statement I want to make, kind of a summary statement of this paragraph is letter A, God's purpose reigns. These are in your sermon notes. I encourage you to take those, jot some notes down as we go through this material. God's purpose reigns. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what he wants his readers to understand through this chapter and really this whole section of Romans. That God's purpose in election will stand. Some subpoints. Number one, we'll notice from this text that God's election is independent of human performance. God's election or choice is independent of human performance. We see that here when it says, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. So what, the election is not God figuring out who's going to be a good little boy or girl and then rewarding them. That's not it. It's not about a naughty and nice list. The purposes of God are independent of human performance, whether people live righteously or irreligiously. It's not about performance. Point number two. God's election is independent from, but does not violate human responsibility or free will. And just pause there, let's catch up and let you digest that a little bit. It's one of those sentences you have to put in the crock pot of your brain a little bit and let it simmer. God's election is independent from, but does not violate human responsibility or free will. How does this work? One of the terms that theologians have given us that's helpful is God's providence. So this is another word I have to define for you. Providence. Providence is God's active governance of the universe. So when we say God is provident, that means he is sovereign over the whole universe and he works within the universe to govern it and accomplish and direct it to where he wants it to move and go. Now, second sentence here, and I think this is really helpful. This is a quote from R.C. Sproul. God works out his will through the actions of human wills without violating the freedom of those human wills. I'm going to pause here and let you digest some of this. This is how God works. So the doctrine of election is part of this. It's how God works providentially throughout the universe that he has created, and he does that working through us without violating human responsibility or human free will. Let me read you the context of this quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, we are creatures with a will of our own. We make things happen. Yet the power we exert is secondary to God's sovereign providence, which stands over and above our actions. He works out his will through the actions of human wills without violating the freedom of those human wills. So we do make things happen by our choice, but our choice, the power we exert in human choosing and our human freedom is under the authority of a sovereign God who works providentially without violating the freedom of those wills. All right, let's go on to another point. Number three. God's purpose in election may seem ironic, even conflicting. And the more you study this, prepare yourself to be conflicted all the more. Okay? The more you really drill into this, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to happen. So look at the text here. Here's why I say this. 
If you go to the verse 12, God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. Rebecca, the mother of these twins, was told the older will serve the younger. That's ironic. Because in that culture, even more so than now, it's usually the firstborn that has most of the responsibility, most of the privilege. Firstborn was to be honored. The younger ones would serve the firstborn, typically. This is the opposite. The older will serve the younger. So there's an irony. And then this is what conflicts me. The next phrase, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now let me clarify this for you a little bit. I don't think Paul is telling us here that before he was even born, God hated Esau. Because this is a quote from the book of Malachi. If you look at your footnote, if you have your scripture in front of you. Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament. The story, the narrative comes from Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. So Malachi is making a commentary on what happened because of Jacob and Esau. You can see in context of that text in Malachi, this is really a reference to nations and their history, not to these two men. So it could just as easily say, Israel I have loved, but Edom, the nation that came out of Esau, I hated. Because Edom never had a heart for God. Okay? Now, what else do you know about these two twins? What do you know about Esau? Anybody, it's class participation time. Give you a little break from hearing me yak. What do you know about Esau? He was a hunter. Sold his birthright. What else do you know about Esau? What did he look like? He was hairy. What kind of hair? He was a redhead. I don't know if he looked like you, Jared, but you know, he's kind of this redhead, manly man kind of guy that loves to hunt. And the scripture says his father, Isaac, loved him because he had a taste for wild game. Yeah, bring the meat in, son, we'll barbecue it up. It's a fantastic thing. Jacob was a guy who liked to stay home a little more. And so you'd think, yeah, God would honor Esau, the natural firstborn, this guy who seemed to be living out his full identity, where Jacob, not just because he stayed at home, that's not a bad thing, but he was kind of a stinker, wasn't he? If you know the story, he was a deceiver from his earliest days. He was a deceiver. He deceived his brother out of his birthright. Somebody said that, that Esau was like, ah, whatever, you can have it, I don't want it, I'd rather eat. And Jacob wanted the blessing of God, so he deceived his older brother out of his birthright. Jacob later deceived his father-in-law Laban. He deceived his wives. That was the story of his life. He was a stinker. Why would God honor a stinker? I don't know. That's why I say God's purpose in election is not only ironic, it just kind of messes you up a little bit. (laughs) You may feel conflicted the more you study this. But if you drill a little deeper and peel back the layers of Jacob's life, you realize this man had an incredible heart for God. His morality a little questionable, his behavior quite manipulative, but he had a heart for God. That's why he deceived his brother out of his birthright. He wanted God's blessing. That's why later, as he was going back to what was later going to be the promised land, the nation of Israel, he wrestled with God and he said, I'm not going to let go of this angel or this type of Christ, whatever it was that's beyond the scope of this sermon, until you bless me. So he had a heart for God. And I want to suggest to you that heart for God was there because of, or certainly in connection with God's election. Because I think without God, without this doctrine, none of us would have much of a heart for God. Because we're too, we're too uh, independent, we're too selfish, we're too stubborn. 
The scripture says in, in this own book, we studied in the early chapters, everyone turns away and together has become worthless. We won't seek God unless God puts a little mm in us to seek him. So here's the implication of that. If you are here today, well, let me back up. Anybody who has even a teeny tiny little itsy bitsy heart for God, in my opinion, and I wouldn't take a bullet for this, is probably one of the chosen. Because I think that's God putting an unction in us, a desire in us to seek him. So that includes every one of you. You know why? Because you're here. You wouldn't be here today if you didn't have some little teeny tiny sliver, itty bitsy something heart for God. Now it's still on human responsibility to respond to that. But I think that's part of the outcome of this beautiful gift of grace that God gives us. I think part of it is a heart for him. And so praise God that you have some heart for God. Now, application of this first paragraph, trust the purposes of God as revealed in Scripture. Having a heart for God is one thing, trusting his purposes is another. And I think that's why Paul is writing this. He's saying, you know what? This is, and we're going to see in a minute in the next paragraph, it's confusing, we don't understand it, we even kind of resist it, but we need to trust the purposes of God. That only makes sense, and I put Job 42.2 on here, some of you know that text. This is the words of Job at the end of the book, after he had listened to the longest speech of God in the scripture. Job 38-41 through 41 is the longest single dialogue of God in all of scripture, and it's kind of admonishing to Job, and Job, after he hears this from God, says, Whew, I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. Didn't know what I was talking about. I repent. Now I know that no purposes of God can be thwarted, 42.2. So Job is saying, I might as well align myself and cooperate with the purposes of God because they're going to happen anyway. Nobody's going to stop it. Nobody's going to thwart the purposes of God. This is an expression of God's providence. He's governing the universe. He's moving it. He's directing it without violating our freedom of choice and our human will. He's somehow accomplishing what he wants to, and nobody's going to stop it. Not even Mr. Putin. Mr. Hitler didn't stop it, now did he? You name anybody else in history, they will not stop the purposes of God. And in Paul's day, he referenced Pharaoh. And I don't know if there was ever a more hard-hearted guy in history than Pharaoh. And we'll talk more about him in the next paragraph. Let's get to that letter B. Theme statement of the second paragraph. God is not unjust or unfair, ever. And sometimes I've heard people make a distinction between God's justice and God's fairness. And God may be unfair, but he's not unjust. <laughs> Don't buy that for a minute. God is unjust and he's not unfair. It's not in his character to be mean, ornery, unfair. Let's read this chapter. Start with verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. See, Paul's just responding to what our hearts feel when we study this doctrine. It's like, well, this doesn't seem fair. God, how could, uh, we don't like it. But Paul says, no, God's not unjust. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. God leads with mercy and compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And this is, let's unpack this a little bit. Number one, first thing I want to say. 
our lack of synthesized understanding about election and free will does not make God unjust, mean, or unfair. So said another way, just because we don't understand something doesn't mean God is unjust. Just because he functions in ways that we maybe can't articulate or really understand or explain adequately doesn't mean he's wrong or mean or unfair. Second point, God leads with mercy and compassion. He leads with mercy and compassion. He uses this example of Pharaoh whose heart was extremely hardened. And sometimes we say God wasn't fair to Pharaoh because if you go back to that narrative, you see that God hardened his already hardened heart. And we say, well, why'd you do that, God? Well, God, we'll we'll talk about this later. But if God was just going to nuke Pharaoh and get him out of the way and free his people and just destroy Egypt, why didn't he just do that? But no, he did the whole ten plague thing. Gave Pharaoh ten chances to repent and relent. He wouldn't do it. And then he did the whole Red Sea thing. And as far as we know, Pharaoh died on the bottom of the Dead Sea from a hardened, hardened, hardened heart. But wasn't it God's mercy to send Moses in the first place? And to give Pharaoh ten chances, ten plagues to relent and repent? All God wanted is for his people to be let go, to start a nation, a nation of freedom. And Pharaoh couldn't do it. But I think the very fact that Moses was called and went is an act of God's mercy because God always leads with mercy and compassion. Number three, God's purposes do not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It's just in the right-hand column there, about a third of the way down. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And too often we think harshly of the doctrine of election when the doctrine of election is a beautiful expression of God's mercy and His grace. It really is, church. But we, so many of us have been into so many contested conversations about this doctrine that I think we have this negative um, feeling or attitude about it. Point four, God raised Pharaoh and each of us up for a purpose. God raised Pharaoh up for a purpose. He raises us up for a purpose. We'll talk more about Pharaoh's purpose in the next point. But right now I just want to give you complimentary teaching that that demonstrates this. The classic text is Isaiah 43, 7, and this is just mid-sentence. I'm pulling it out of context, but in context, throughout 2,000 years, the church has said this verse really encapsulates what God's purpose for us is. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. The psalmist says God knit us together in a mother's womb. He did that so we would be to the praise of his glory. We're created for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says it perhaps a little more clearly in the New Testament where Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's your purpose. In everything you do, live for the glory of God. That's our purpose. Now how did God do that in Pharaoh? Point five, God has mercy on whom he wishes and hardens whom he wishes. I want to suggest to you that God's eternal purpose in election did stand in Pharaoh and the whole Egypt and letting God's people go. In the case of Pharaoh, I think God hardened an already hardened heart. And this adds another word we ought to add in our discussion, the word foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, I don't need to write a definition because it's just, duh, it just is what it says. It's knowledge about things beforehand. 
for knowledge, before knowledge. So God in his foreknowledge knew that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It was never going to be unhardened. And so God leveraged the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and hardened it even more that he could display his glory to his captive enslaved people in Egypt so they could see his hand in the plagues. And so they would follow Moses into the wilderness when days later God would part a sea of all things and two million people would walk through it and turn around and watch Pharaoh and his army sink and die at the bottom of the Red Sea. And so God advanced his purposes for his chosen people by leveraging hardness of heart in a man who is probably as hardened to God as anybody we've ever known in human history. That's a good thing. That's a great thing God did. I don't know where I'm at. Did I give you the... So our challenge is here... Okay, application. Our personal challenge is to discover and live out our unique call within the purposes of God. We have to understand that God's overall purpose for every one of us as believers in Christ, even if you're not a believer in Christ, is to live for his glory. That's what God calls us to do. But each of us has a unique path or a unique way of doing that because we have different experiences, we have different personalities, we have different DNA. We have different locations, different contexts, so that's on us to figure that out. And as we do that, I want you to be sure you understand this. Another term, sorry for all the terms that you don't use in everyday conversation, that's the term predestination, which some people say is synonymous with election. I'm, I can't be quite there. I think predestination is something that is, is certainly complementary with election, maybe two sides of a coin, but a little different. Here's why I say that. Look at some of these scriptures. Romans 8, 29. We studied this the last segment we did of Romans. For those God foreknew, we already talked about that, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestination always seems to connect not just with salvation, but how the saved people live, how the elect live. The elect, are, the elect are to live for the glory and the display of God's glory in the world. And that's what it says here in Romans 8, 29. Look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 5. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, that we should live as Jesus' sons in accordance with God's pleasure and will. So we're predestined as elect people to live a certain way as Jesus lived to the glory of the Father. And then later in that chapter, verse 11 and 12, and if you want to if you want to memorize a verse that has as many of these doctrines in it that we're talking about this morning as you can, this is your, these are your verses, all right? So you ought to memorize these. Um, in him we were also chosen, ding, there's our doctrine of election, having been predestined, predestined to what? According to the plan of him who works out everything, conformity with the purpose of his will, that's his providence and includes his foreknowledge. What are we predestined to? To live for the praise of his glory. We were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory and thus fulfill our God-ordained purpose as people who glorify him. You and I got to figure out how to do that given who you are, your history, what's in your rearview mirror, what's inside of you, etc. But here's what I want to suggest. Don't overthink this. This isn't as difficult as we make it. And here's why. Anybody know what Colossians 117 says? Somebody knows it. Thank you. That's why everybody looked, duh, the last two services. 127. 
Anybody quote it? Quote it straighter. You know it for crying out loud. It's Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. You want to glorify God? You can't do it without Jesus in you. You can't do it. It's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. So don't overthink this thing. How am I going to glorify Jesus? Well, at the start, I've got to be done with myself. I have to surrender myself so the full, the full life of Christ can come into me. And then it's Jesus living through me that glorifies the Father. We quoted this guy, Ian Thomas, a couple years ago or last year. I don't know. And remember what he said? He said, there's only one person who can live the life of Christ. Who is it? J Jesus. So if you want to live to the glory of God, you've got to be done with you and you've got to start with him. It's him living through you. This is why Paul said what he did in Galatians 2.20. I hope I got this reference right. Yeah, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I live in this body, I live by faith, not in myself, not in my abilities, not in my intellect, not in good fortune, but in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me because it's him living through me that gains glory for God. Third point, summary statement from verses 19 to 21. Be reverent before God with a restful, quiet heart in response to this doctrine of election. And I haven't seen this much in lots of years of theological discussions. Most people, when they talk about election, they seem kind of agitated, kind of frustrated, kind of confused, kind of I'm right and you're wrong attitude. I think we just miss it. We need to just back up and say, all right, maybe we don't understand this fully, but let's just embrace it by faith. Let's have a heart of rest and quiet and peace before the Lord in response to this doctrine of election. Yes, it's hard truth. Yes, it's difficult to understand. Yes, we are never going to cognitively be able to describe it fully, but that's okay. We can embrace biblical mystery. And I think I've said this to you before too. Biblical mystery is true, but it's truth that we can't fully explain. Doesn't mean it's not truth just because we can't explain it. So to fully uh, rejoice in this doctrine of election and these other associated doctrines, I think we have, to have, we have to be able to embrace biblical mystery that says it's true, boy, I wish I could explain it better, but I'm gonna celebrate it because it's true and God has revealed that. To me. So two points here. One I've already said. It's just a restatement. You need to embrace providence. Providence, as we defined it earlier, is how God works out his will through the actions of human wills without violating the freedom of those human wills. And some of you are still back 20 minutes ago meditating on that statement, and that's okay. Because <laughs> this is one you want to think about, all right? Because it's, it's all the conflictedness in one sentence, kind of. And, and we go, what? How does that work? I don't know but I really think that's a true statement. Foreknowledge, predestination, election, they're all a part of how God works out his providence in the universe. Number two, another term that might be helpful to you or might frustrate you more, is the term concurrence. We need to embrace concurrence. Concurrence, concurrence describes how God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. I'm going to let you just look at that and soak on that a minute. It's this truth that helps us realize that uh, 
God had something to do with that 70-degree day we had last Saturday. And he had something to do with that freezing, cold, windy day we had yesterday. Part of that we like, part of that we don't like. Now, don't go out here and say, oh, see, I knew it. God causes, God forms and shapes hurricanes with his finger, and then he directs them to wicked people. False. Red X. I don't know. Maybe he could, I suppose. Maybe I shouldn't be quite so definitive about that. But God somehow works with natural things to accomplish his will, including us. And the real, real relevant point here is our wills. God somehow cooperates with the human will without violating that will to advance his creation and his universe according to his plan and purpose. One of the implications of that is there's no such thing as luck. Let me read to you again from R.C. Sproul. He says, in a universe governed by God, there are no chance events. Indeed, there's no such thing as chance. Chance doesn't exist. It's merely a word we use to describe mathematical possibilities. But chance itself has no power because it has no being. Chance is not an entity that can influence reality. Chance is not a thing. It's a nothing. So don't think you can go out of here and buy a lottery ticket and win the odds of chance. That would be incredibly unwise in the first place because the odds are really stacked against you of mathematical probability of winning $100 million. But let's say the lottery's at $100 million and you go out and you buy a ticket. If you win it, I expect a good share of those proceeds to come to Crossroads Church. Because <laughs> you didn't win it by luck. You didn't win it by chance. You won it because the hand of God had something to do with it. There is no such thing as chance. It, it just doesn't exist. And yet when it's difficult, when life gets hard, we say, boy, he's, he's stumbled on some bad luck, hasn't he? I don't know. He lives in a broken world. And that's where we have to trust the purposes of God that he'll work through even the brokenness for great, great things without violating our human will. And most of the bad in the world we bring on ourselves now, don't we? <laughs> Happening in Eastern Europe again. Humanity can't seem to get it right, can we? We never will. Now, let me talk to you about how some illustrations about how God does this. I see Nashwan over here and his wife, Sina. How is it? Is it chance that God, that, that somehow an Iraqi Christian from Mosul, Iraq, who suffered and has scars for the gospel of Jesus Christ, would happen to stumble into crossroads about the time we're hoping to plant a church in urban Toledo amongst Arabic peoples? Your odds of winning the lottery are better than that. That's not luck. That's not chance. God put a vision in this man's heart decades ago for what he's doing today. He never heard of Wasion, Ohio. He still can't pronounce it for crying out loud. <laughs> that's not chance. 
That's God's ordaining. That's God pulling people together to accomplish his purposes. And all we have to do is say, okay, God, we'll follow your lead. We'll align with it. Is it chance that we have now been, all of us have been a part of seeing about 20 churches planted in Southern Africa that have reached over 1,200 people with the gospel of Jesus in the last three and a half years? That's not chance because all those people who are doing it, we didn't know any of them four years ago. We don't know most of them today. But without you, Crossroads Church, that's not happening. That's not chance. That's not good fortune. That's God leveraging and orchestrating relationships and connections to advance his purposes on the world. It's amazing. We ought to celebrate that. Yeah, there's a few amens and one woohoo. Some of you ought to clap, but okay. <clears throat> I can't get much more animated than this. You know, I'm old. I can't do this anymore. <clears throat> All right. Really, it comes down to the, the fabulous work I got an author named Henry Blackaby did back in the 90s, and he wrote a book called Experiencing God. Most of you haven't read it because it's old, but you should. Because Blackaby's kind of his main theme is figure out what God is doing and join him. That's what election's all about. That's what providence is all about. That's what foreknowledge predestination is all about. It's God advancing his purposes in the world and his purpose in election will stand. Don't fight it. Align yourself with it and watch what God does. It's an incredible ride. All right, application of this paragraph. Embrace both truths of election predestination and human responsibility, free will, even if you cannot cognitively synthesize those truths. In my journey of election dialogue and trying to search this out over the last four decades, this has been the most helpful thing to just say, you know what, I, I cannot intellectually synthesize these truths. I, I try, I, this is what I want, I can't get there. But they're both true. Election predestination, it's true. You can't deny it when you study Scripture. Human responsibility and freedom of choice, you can't deny it when you study Scripture. They're both beautiful, profound truths that are an expression of the mercy and the grace in the heart of God and his love for his people. Let's just celebrate that. We, we can. You know what? We are called to be people of faith and celebration, not to be omniscient. which means all knowledgeable. Nowhere in the scripture does God call us to be omniscient. Nowhere in the scripture is our sanctification to be working to gain more knowledge until we have it all. I don't even think that's going to happen when we get to heaven. Scripture doesn't promise us we're going to be all-knowing when we get to heaven. Only God is all-knowing. Only God is omniscient. We'll be discovering the richness and the depth of God for all eternity. What a beautiful thing. We're not going to know it. There's no presto thing, and I'm like, God... So God doesn't hold us accountable for omniscience. He holds us accountable to believe in what he has already revealed. He maybe hasn't revealed as much as we'd like him to, but our challenge is not to figure out what he hasn't revealed, but to embrace what he has by faith. Don't misunderstand what he hasn't said to us. Let it go and embrace what he has said to us by faith. I think that will lead us to profound gratitude, and it's a beautiful thing. And if we can do that, I think it helps to keep our hearts soft before God, especially in relation to these really hard doctrines. 
that are hard to explain, hard to understand, especially hard to synthesize. But church, don't let the frustration of your own intellectual limitations hinder your faith in this. Embrace what God says. It's a beautiful thing. He's leading with grace and mercy, and this is all a, these are all terms that describe part of how he does it. Just embrace that. Celebrate it. Rejoice in it. Without, as Paul says in this chapter, talking back to God. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Shall the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Why are you forming me like this? I don't want to be formed that way. It's a stubborn, independent, hardened heart. It's the beginning of hardness of heart. We don't want to be like Pharaoh. Keep your heart soft in response to God's election, his predestination, his foreknowledge, his providence, and his sovereignty. All right, some of you are here and you're going, ah, this is all well and good. Okay, fine, sure, whatever. I really want one statement I can take away that somehow helps me synthesize predestination and human will. So I'm going to give you one little statement, but I wouldn't die for it, all right? Would not take a bullet for this. I like it. I've used it a lot. I heard it probably 35 years ago. And I do think it kind of maybe brings these two together. It doesn't answer all the questions, but I do like it and I, I kind of sort of think it's true. How's that for confidence? So here it is. Oh, it's not on the screen. Never mind. I didn't have enough confidence to even put it on the screen. Because, <laughs> you know, people watch this thing online. Hi. And they judge you. And I don't want to be judged for what. So um, choose God because he's choosing you. I, I think that's okay. I think election clearly speaks of the saving initiative of God in the world. I don't think we have a chance to trust in God without God implanting in us a heart for him, even if it just starts as a teeny tiny little bitty heart. So it's his initiative. He's, he's choosing you. If you're here this morning, you have some heart for God. He's choosing you. Choose him. Choose God because he's choosing you. That's, that's pretty good. Not original with me. Here's the real point. Go all in by faith in God even though you'll never have omniscient understanding. Don't wait till you understand everything or you'll never get there. Trust him. Put your faith in what he has revealed. Respond to that and move forward. And it'll, it'll all unfold for you. All right, last paragraph. I'm going to do a little more buckshot on this one, but let me read it. Verses 22 through 29. Um, oh, I think I forgot to read the prior paragraph. I got too excited. All right, it's there, though. You see it. Verse 22, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us? whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. In other words, Paul is saying this whole bit God did with Pharaoh and with hardened people, he did for you. And that's part of why you believe in Jesus today. Because he chose to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of mercy by leveraging hardness of heart way back there in different times. So we should thank him for that. And he says that's not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He's reached out to us, Gentile believers. 
goes on, he says, as he says in Hosea, I'll call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel now, and we're going to talk more about Israel in chapter 11. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah had said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. So again, we're going to unpack this more in chapter 11 where God still has a future for a remnant of his people Israel. But the amazing thing is he's worked through such hardened people like Pharaoh, like so many of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day in order that we might believe in him. We Gentiles. So maybe God doesn't cause people to be hardened, but either way, whether he causes it or not, he sure leverages it to advance his purpose for the people that Respond in love to him. Let me give you some points to finish out your, your notes here. Number one, he, he reveals his glory to us through his great patience. That's from verse 22. Number two, through election, which I want to say is a rich mercy of grace. It's not just an agitating intellectual principle. It's truth of God's grace, how God works providentially in his creation. Number three, God reveals his glory through his gift of choosing Gentiles and the non-hardened of Israel. This is an awesome thing. I just talked about it. Number four, God is equally just to condemn the hardened to eternal death. That comes to us from the last two verses of this section. In Hebrews chapter 3, God says of a certain people, he said their hearts are always going astray. Pharaoh had a heart that was always going astray. He just kept getting hardened more and more and farther and farther from God instead of repenting and turning back to God. And people who are like that, God is not unjust in condemning them to eternal death. And I would suggest he gives people opportunity. That's why we need to be on mission for the gospel because he will provide those opportunities through you and through me as we are faithful to proclaim this gospel to the world. And I want you to do that, so that's our application. Go ahead with the application. Participate with God in evangelizing those he chooses. This is one of the knocks against strong Calvinism in this doctrine of election. Well, if God chooses, it's already decided, why do I have to evangelize? No, 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 no. There still needs to be human response. God's choice doesn't violate human freedom and responsibility. It's up to us to proclaim the gospel so people can respond in faith and choose God when he's choosing them. And I want to encourage you, if you you yourself find yourself today with a bit of a hardened heart, and some of you are probably here with that, and you're saying, well, maybe i got an eensy-teensy tiny little bit of heart for God, but it isn't much, so I'm kind of angry at God because there's pain, there's carnage in my rearview mirror that he could have done something about. I want to encourage you, no matter how hard your heart may seem, Scripture does have cases of people who, unlike Pharaoh, repented of extreme hard-heartedness. You know the story of Nebuchadnezzar? He was the uh, king of Babylon who had taken God's people into captivity. And you remember how Nebuchadnezzar responded to those three guys he threw in the fiery furnace? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're wandering around and they're in the fire and they see a fourth guy in there, some form of Jesus, pretty sure about that. Not many people appear in fire and walk around. And they walked out of that fiery furnace, they didn't even smell like smoke. Their little beards weren't even singed. 
What? I think of this every time. Well, that's an illustration I don't need to share. It's funny, though. Ask me about it later. Um, Their hair wasn't even singed. And Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden like, what? Tear down that idol I made. Everybody's got to worship the God who saved these guys because this is the real God. He relented. He repented. And then he drifted back into hardness later in his life, mainly through success. He walks around on the roof of his palace saying, this is a great Babylon I built. I'm awesome. Look at this. And God drove him from his people and he lived like a wild animal for a whole season. It says he ate grass. His fingernails grew out like a bear claw, claws of an eagle. The guy was nuts. But God restored him, drew him back. And then you remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? It's one of the great worship statements in all of Scripture. He said, now I elevate, I worship and praise the most high God. So there's a man who twice in his life, whose heart was very hardened, he repented, he relented. Remember the Ninevites? Those were the people in Nineveh, a wicked people. Google ancient Ninevites and you'll see some stuff that, they were terrible people. And Jonah said, I don't even want to go talk to those guys because God, I can see what you're doing. I know you, I know what you're up to. They're going to repent and I don't want any part of that because they deserve hell. God had his way with Jonah. God can even use a big fish providentially without violating the will of that fish. Isn't that interesting? We could talk about that. Um, Yum. (laughs) He's licking his lips. Does a fish lick their lips? I don't know, but anyway. God gets Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, and what in the world? They do repent. Hardened, wicked people who repented. The Apostle Paul, New Testament, whose heart was harder? Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. I was participating in the martyrdom of the early Christians. Who could be harder than that to the gospel? And God transformed his heart and he was broken. He became the first international missionary, planting scads of churches around the Middle East. So there's hope for the hardened. There's hope for the hardened. And you don't know who's hardened beyond repair and who isn't. You know what? Because we don't have foreknowledge. Never will. (laughs) God does, we don't. God knows who the elect are. We don't. But God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to preach the gospel to people whose hearts are seeking me so they can believe. So church, uh, the band, you guys can come on out. Um, We're just going to close on really an awesome song called Gratitude. I think that's what it's called. Which there's a lot of responses we could give to this message. Gratitude probably should be at the top of the list. Just thanks, God. Thanks for this amazing expression of your grace and your mercy and your compassion. And so uh, let's stand and sing this together as we respond with profound gratitude in our hearts to the goodness and the sovereignty of God.